Evergreen Cemetery in the Boyle Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles is the city's oldest public cemetery. And girl, it looks like it. When you drive by Evergreen, it seems haunted. The grass is dead, the headstones are crumbling. It's actually a pretty jarring sight right there in the middle of the urban sprawl of Los Angeles. It's like straight out of a horror movie. But buried in the ground, underneath the concrete weeping angels are the remains of the black, brown, white, and Asian people who built this city. Some are remembered, some are forgotten, but they all have one thing in common, stories. And what are ghost stories, if not tales about the dead? When I was a kid, every time my family drove by Evergreen Cemetery, my dad always told me and my brother the same creepy story. When my dad was in high school, he went to a dance at Roosevelt High School in Boyle Heights. My dad didn't go to Roosevelt. He went to Salesian, the nearby Catholic all-boys private high school. So he really didn't know many people at the dance, especially any girls. But there was one girl who caught his eye. She was pretty, she was petite, and she was standing all by herself. My dad introduced himself. She said her name was Lori. She was a little shy, but her silence didn't seem to matter to my dad. He was smitten. My dad asked her to dance to the next slow song. As he held her, he noticed through her sweater that she was really cold. After the dance, my dad offered to walk her home, and she obliged. On the walk home, she complained that she was really cold, so my dad wrapped her in his letterman jacket. When she got home, she walked to the door, waved goodbye, and walked inside the house. The next day, my dad cruised back to the house, walked up to the door, and knocked. An old lady answered, and my dad figures it's her grandma or some tia, and he asks if he can talk to Lori. Well, the old lady gets really angry, and she's like, Is this some sort of joke, young man? My daughter Lori died 30 years ago yesterday, on her birthday! But my dad didn't believe her at all. He had just talked to the girl. But the woman said, look, if you don't believe me, you can go check it out for yourself. She's buried at Evergreen Cemetery. So my dad accepts the challenge and goes to Evergreen. And sure enough, after some hunting, he found a headstone with Lori's name on it. And wrapped around the headstone was his letterman jacket. Welcome to Evergreen. I'm Joe Batanz. On this show, we're going to visit Evergreen Cemetery and hear the real-life facts, fiction, and legends of the people buried there. Some of the tales will sound familiar, but many won't. They make up the forgotten histories of the Latinx, Black, Asian, Jewish, and white people who built Boyle Heights. Evergreen, as the oldest cemetery in Los Angeles, is unique in that its residents include some of the most famous names in the history of L.A. and some people whose names have been forgotten, but whose contribution is no less significant. The artist Banksy has an interesting take on an old idea. They say you die twice. The first time 
is when you take your last breath. And the second time is when someone says your name for the last time. Well, if that's the case, then I'm here to raise the dead. I'm going to tell you some ghost stories, but unlike the story my dad told, they're not the ghost stories you're used to hearing. Our ghosts don't stay at the cemetery. They and their stories stay with us and take us to places in Boyle Heights from all those years ago. Every episode will start at Evergreen. Sometimes I'll stay at the cemetery, sometimes I'll explore other parts of the neighborhood, but like any good host, I'll feed you, entertain you, and maybe even sing you a song. So take my hand and follow me. I'll be your tour guide. This is Los Angeles. This is Boyle Heights. This is Evergreen. I'm at the main entrance of Evergreen Cemetery, which is on the west side of the property off Evergreen Avenue. Now there are three roads that branch off from the entrance. The middle road leads to an area on the east side of the graveyard dedicated to the Pacific Coast Showman's Association. And what is the Pacific Coast Showman's Association? Well, the Pacific Coast Showman's Association was established in 1922 as an organization that provides support and resources and community for circus performers. They also have their own dedicated area of the graveyard. And that's where we're heading to now. This area of Evergreen Cemetery, known as Section L, is dedicated to the gravesites of circus performers. For instance, right here is the gravesite of Dainty Dottie Jensen. She weighed over 600 pounds and toured with the circus as both a human oddity and an accomplished tattoo artist. And here's Emily Bailey. She was another circus fat lady, but she lost her job when she lost the weight. No, but they're not the focus of today's story. The person we're going to learn about today is a man by the name of... Oh, here he is. Hugo Zacchini. Now, he earned his spot here in Section L, the section dedicated to circus people, because Hugo Zacchini was most well-known as a human cannonball. Actually, not just any human cannonball, but the first man to ever be shot from a cannon. In fact, it even says that right here on his headstone. It reads, first man to ever be shot from a cannon. Now, while that's an interesting fact, it's not the whole story. But before we get into that though, let's learn a little bit more about our hero, Hugo Zacchini. 1929's most sensational circus performer. Hugo Sacchini, one of seven sons of a Peruvian painter, who introduced to America the breathtaking stunt of being shot out of a cannon 180 feet through the air. And here's the act. 
fact have received such tremendous acclaim from press and public, the operation of which is a family secret. Hugo Zacchini was born in Peru on October 20th, 1898, to Ildebrando and Malayin Zacchini. Hugo's father, Ildebrando Zacchini, owned and operated the Zacchini Circus. It was a family business, so Hugo and his brothers helped his father's enterprise by performing as jugglers, trapeze artists, and acrobats. Ildebrando, the patriarch of the clan, was the brains behind the innovation that brought us a cannon that used compressed air to shoot a human being over 200 feet. Meanwhile, our hero, Hugo Zacchini, he volunteered to test out his father's newfangled invention and thus became the first man ever to be shot out of a cannon. But before we go any further, I want to take a historical tangent and talk briefly about the history of the Human Cannonball Act. You see, while Zacchini's epitaph isn't a lie, it's not the whole story. Yes, Hugo Zacchini is the first man to be shot out of a cannon, but it's a sin of omission because he's not the first person to be shot out of a cannon. That honor belongs to Rosa Matilda Richter, who went by the name of Zazel, the beautiful human cannonball. In 1877, at the tender age of 17, Zazel climbed into a cannon that relied on rubber springs to propel the young maiden into a net. Accounts vary. Some claim she went as far as 70 feet, while others say it was only 20 feet. Regardless, this act dazzled British audiences by the thousands. Now, 20 feet might seem unimpressive today, but despite the short distance, Zazel suffered multiple injuries. In fact, in the 1890s, the cannon stunt went awry and Zazel suffered a massive back-breaking accident that forced her into an early retirement. Enter the Zacchini family. 20 years after the forced retirement of Zazel, Ildebrando Zacchini got to thinking about improvements to the Human Cannonball Act. So, with the help of Hugo and his brothers, the Zacchini men got to work on an important innovation in the art of the human cannonball. Compressed air. By using compressed air instead of rubber springs, the Zacchinis could shoot the subject farther with a safer and more reliable method of expulsion. By 1922, the prototype was ready, and the first person to enter the cannon and launch himself into the air was none other than 24-year-old Hugo Zacchini, the first man to ever be shot out of a cannon. By 1924, the act was ready for prime time, and during a performance in Egypt, Hugo Zacchini, in front of hundreds of spectators, flew out of a cannon and into a net 200 feet away. The act was an instant sensation. In 1928, Hugo Zacchini was in Denmark with his human cannonball act when circus impresario John Ringling saw the act and offered Hugo Zacchini a contract right there on the spot to travel the world with the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. And for the next 44 years, Hugo Zacchini's career, apart from a few bumps and bruises, ran smoothly. 
But in 1972, towards the twilight of his career, something unexpected happened at the Cuyahoga County Fair in Ohio. Now, don't worry. No physical harm comes to Hugo Zacchini in this story. He goes on to live a long, happy life and dies peacefully surrounded by his family. No, what happened in 1972 is an event that landed Hugo Zacchini in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. It's 1972. Hugo Zacchini is performing his human cannonball act at the Cuyahoga County Fair in Ohio. As he's getting ready, he sees a cameraman from the local news station preparing to film the act. So, Zacchini walks up to the cameraman and says, Listen, I don't want you filming my act. And the guy's like, Okay, I won't film your act. So, Zacchini does his human cannonball act. The guy didn't film it. End of story. Well... The cameraman goes back to the news station and the producer's like, why didn't you film the human cannonball act? And the cameraman says, Zucchini told me not to. So the producer goes, listen, tomorrow you're going back and you're filming the human cannonball act. So the next day, the guy shows up at the county fair again. This time, Zucchini doesn't see the cameraman and the cameraman films Zucchini's entire 15 second act. Later that night on the 11 o'clock news, they broadcast the entire act from start to finish. Zacchini is furious. You might even say he was like a man shot out of a cannon. I hate myself for making that joke. So, he sues Scripps Howard Broadcasting, the owner of the station, for violating his right to publicity. Now, the first trial court rules in favor of the Scripps Howard Broadcasting Company. The court decides that Scripps Howard has a First Amendment right to broadcast newsworthy events. So, Zucchini appeals, and the appeals court sides with Zucchini. They say, no, Zucchini has a right to publicity, and Scripps Howard violated his rights when they broadcast Zucchini's entire act. Well, then it goes to the Ohio Supreme Court, and the Ohio Supreme Court decides in favor of Scripps Howard. But the court has an interesting take. The Ohio Supreme Court decides that Zacchini's right to publicity had indeed been violated according to Ohio state law, but that Scripps Howard's federally protected First Amendment rights superseded Ohio state law, and thus the Ohio Supreme Court ruled in favor of Scripps Howard. So, Zacchini appeals again, and this time, it goes to the United States Supreme Court, mama. And the United States Supreme Court agrees to hear the case. Just a reminder, Hugo Zacchini was at the Cuyahoga County Fair in 1972 when he was filmed against his wishes. By the time the Supreme Court hears the case, it's 1977. At issue is whether the First Amendment rights of Scripps Howard superseded Zacchini's right to privacy. Now, by the magic of audio, we have the actual oral argument of the case Zacchini versus Scripps Howard Broadcasting. In this clip, Chief Justice Warren Berger poses an interesting question 
to Zacchini's attorney, John Lancioni, who responds in kind with an example of his own. When Muhammad Ali uh, engages in one of his professional uh, uh, exhibitions, uh, prize fighting, uh, I understand that the ratio is about 10 to 1 or more, that the TV rights are many, many times the income he receives from the persons who are present at the, at the arena. Suppose, surreptitiously, uh, either one of the networks or an outlaw uh, group uh, filmed the entire fight and then tried to put it on the air. Do you analogize your client situation to what that would be with Muhammad Ali? Yes, I do, Your Honor. But I think that uh, it would be the very same situation if on a program on fine arts uh, the media would go into the concert hall and tape the Eighth Symphony, which Beethoven's Eighth Symphony doesn't take more than a half an hour, and play the entire symphony. Uh, the difference is our case is stronger because Hugo Zucchini only has one performance. He doesn't play any different tune like a violinist. He has one 15-second act, and they have captured that, and, and they have captured that with his, over his specific objection, which I think is very important. So, in June 1977, the U.S. Supreme Court finally rendered its decision. Justice Wizard White read the opinion of the majority from the bench. And we decline to hold uh, that a television station is constitutionally privileged to broadcast a performer's entire act without his consent, whether as part of a news broadcast or otherwise. Entertainment is important news, and uh, Scripps Howard could undoubtedly have broadcast the essential facts of Zucchini's performance as part of its news broadcast. But the First Amendment does not protect the appropriation of an entire act any more than it would the use of a copyrighted work. The judgment is reversed. Mr. Justice Powell joined by... To make sense of this all, I consulted with an actual constitutional expert. Elizabeth Wydra is the president of the Constitutional Accountability Center in Washington, D.C. She's a graduate of Yale Law School and a familiar presence on all the cable news channels whenever the Supreme Court is in the headlines. But, more impressively, she was my high school prom date. And I think that, make, <laughs> I think so that makes her... So totally, totally um, appropriate for this conversation. Oh, yeah. While I was talking to Elizabeth Wydra, she made a really interesting observation about Justice Wizard White, whose voice you just heard in the clip, and who wrote the majority opinion in Zacchini versus Scripps Howard Broadcasting. Um, you know, Justice White, who wrote this decision of finding that, you know, Mr. Zacchini had these rights um, and his right of publicity is kind of rooted in the right of privacy, didn't see so much privacy when the Supreme Court a few years earlier was deciding Roe versus Wade. So, you know, uh, sorry, I, I'm sorry. I just took a totally happy, frivolous moment and like made it super serious. What Elizabeth is referring to is the fact that Justice White wrote the dissent in the case of Roe v. Wade. He found that a woman did not have a right to privacy while a human cannonball did. I wish I could tell you that when Zacchini heard the news about his Supreme Court victory, he was elated. 
You might even say he was like a man shot out of a cannon. Guys, what is wrong with me? I hate myself so much. But this decision was reached in 1977, and as I mentioned earlier, Hugo Zacchini died peacefully at home, surrounded by his family, on his birthday, October 20th, 1975. That same year, Hugo Zacchini was inducted into the International Circus Hall of Fame. So, what about the legacy of the Supreme Court decision? I asked Elizabeth about the importance of this case. So it certainly is the only case that the Supreme Court has ever decided on this question. And, you know, you think about how this impacts performers today. Like, look, if you could watch you know, an entire Dave Chappelle comedy show or an entire Beyonce concert and, you know, not have to pay to go to the show? Like, would that impact their economic incentives to engage in that creative endeavor? I mean, I don't know. You'd probably still want to go to the show, but it's still their decision. It's their decision about, you know, how they present their creative work. And so, You know, that's why a lot of times we see on the news snippets of something. We don't see the entire act performed its entirety. Or I guess maybe a better example to be would be like a movie. You know, like if you were reporting on the opening of the new Marvel film and instead of just reporting on the, you know, opening of the film, they showed you the whole film in the 11 o'clock news hour, you know, which would be a questionable use of their news hour. But, you know, then you'd be like, oh, cool, I don't have to pay money to go to the movie theater now. So yeah, I mean, it absolutely has a lasting impact in that way, for sure. Um, That being said, I, I did like look to see how many times it had been cited by the Supreme Court since then. And, uh, Granted, you know, my research skills maybe were off, but it came up with zero, which was sad. Seems like for now, Zacchini versus Scripps Howard Broadcasting is the only right of publicity case to come before the Supreme Court. A couple of interesting footnotes that speak to the legacy of Hugo Zacchini. The family actually patented and proposed the human cannon as a defense weapon to launch soldiers across enemy lines. Unfortunately, no country was interested in the idea. So instead, the Zacchinis used the technology in their circus act. But it seems the Zacchinis may have been a century ahead of their time. As of 2022, the concept is currently in development by several local U.S. police forces as a method of propelling police officers onto the roofs of tall buildings. Another interesting footnote, Hugo Zacchini was actually an accomplished artist. In fact, he graduated from the Rome Art Academy when he was 21 years old. His original ambition was to make his living as an artist rather than a circus performer. According to Zacchini's New York Times obituary, he once told a reporter, yes, Say for me that my canon does me much honor, but do not forget to add that it is as a painter, as an artist, as a creator, that is my ambition to be known. Day by day, my canon cannot give me the thrills that I can get with my brush. So, while Hugo Zacchini's Supreme Court decision may not have been cited in any future cases, his legacy lives on 
in legally cemented protections for creators, be they a YouTube influencer, Instagram thirst trap, or anyone who creates content like this podcast, we all owe a bit of gratitude to the artist, Hugo Zacchini, the first man to ever be shot from a cannon. Hugo Zacchini, we speak your name. As promised, we're going to end this episode with some music, but first, let's go back to the ghost story my dad told me. By the time I was a teenager, I started to piece together the lies, or as we say in Spanish, the mentiras. First of all, my dad didn't even play any sports in high school. How would he have a letterman jacket? And then, in college, I took a class in cultural anthropology specifically about urban legends and heard that same story about Lori. So I've known about these mentiras for years. But when I was prepping this podcast, I told my dad I was going to expose his mentiras, and he threw me for a loop. He revealed he had lifted the story from a song. The song is from 1964, and it's called Lori. It was originally sung by a musician named Dickie Lee, and it peaked at number 14 on the Billboard charts. Earlier in the show, I warned you I might sing you a song. Well, <laughs> I am. We're going to listen to a portion of a cover I recorded with piano player Alex Lefebvre. Here's where things got weird. The recording session was literally just me and Alex. No one else. But when I listened back to the recording later, I heard some really spooky noises in the background. Take a listen. See if you can hear any supernatural sounds. You're wrong, son. You weren't with my daughter. How can you be so cruel to come to me this way? My Lori left this world on her birthday. She died a year ago today. A strange force drew me to the graveyard. I stood in the dark. I was the shadows wave and then I looked and saw my sweater lying there upon her grave strange things happen in this God, that is so stupid. Seriously, what's wrong with me? Anyway, since I tricked you into listening to the song super closely, you may have noticed a peculiar coincidence. Lori died on her birthday. 
Hugo Zacchini also died on his birthday. Like the song says, strange things happen in this world. It's true. But it's especially true in Boyle Heights. My name is Joe Batanz, and this is Evergreen. This episode was produced by Paulina Velasco and Monica Lopez. Juleka Lentiga was the executive producer. Selena De La Cruz was the audio engineer and editor. Special thanks to Elizabeth Wydra from the Constitutional Accountability Center. Sleepwalk was written by Johnny and Santo Farina and performed here by Alex Lefebvre. Lori was written by Milton Addington and performed by Alex Lefebvre and Joe Batance. Special thanks to Fernando Spuri, Jane Zumalt, and Lee Hernandez from Spotify. Also, big thanks to Isis Madrid and Maria Muriel from Pizza Shark Media. Finally, endless gratitude to the other members of the Spotify SoundUp program who have proven to be both my rock and redemption throughout this process. Joe Batanz is the host, writer, and creator of Evergreen. <laughs>